We're going to look at a good chunk of Scripture tonight. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, verses 17 through 26, is what we're going to continue to walk through tonight. And we're, we're in this ser- series, and we're looking at Christ's best-known sermon. It was, a, it was, in fact, is the longest recorded sermon that Jesus Christ ever preached. If you read it word for word, it would take you 17 minutes. Now, I'm not Jesus, so it's going to take a little bit longer than that tonight. <laughs> So, but we're only going to look at 10 verses, and so we're going to look at this issue of really what he's talking about here is reconciliation. When you, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, when you look at all the things that Jesus told his followers, he continually told them this, the believers are to think and to act differently than the rest of the world. That as believers, that we are to think and we're to act differently than the rest of the world. If you're really a Christ follower, if you're really one of his disciples. And so he carries this theme all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. When he, when he begins to bring Christianity down to an even deeper level than, than just, at this point, it was just about the rules and the regulations and the rites and the rituals and all this stuff. And Jesus is like, oh, wait a minute, it's way more than that. It, it's also an issue of the heart. Your beliefs should drive your actions. The way you think drives the way, 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 you, way you act your life out. So starting in verse 17, here's what the scripture says. Jesus is preaching, Jesus is speaking. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law. He's talking about the Old Testament. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he says, hey, wait a minute. I'm not, I'm not wiping out. I'm not, not negating the Old Testament. I'm not abolishing the law. And there's ways to understand that. Or what the prophets have said. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Listen, Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ was fulfillment of all the, the festivals uh, that were in the Old Testament, the feasts, the celebrations. Everything pointed to the day of Christ. Jesus Christ fulfills the Old Testament. And so he goes on and he says this, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, nor the smallest letter, nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So Jesus is saying this. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. In other words, I came to complete it. All the festivals in Scripture, when you look at that in the Old Testament, they were all pointing to, to Jesus, that Jesus one day would come and fulfill them. And, and so Jesus didn't come to fix things because things have gotten out of control. He didn't come to fix things because God's plan had failed and went bad. He didn't come to fulfill things, uh, but he came to bring everything full circle, to complete Everything. In fact, is commentators will tell you this, that it brings it to the intended purpose that Jesus Christ was bringing the Old Testament really and truly the way to understand the Old Testament in the light of the New. Because the New Testament is fulfillment of the Old Testament. And then he goes on and he gives a warning, verse 19. So he has their attention because he's talking to Pharisees, Jews. Remember, they know the Old Testament. They know the book of the law frontwards, forwards, backwards. They'd been taught it in school for a long, long time. They understood it. And then he goes on and gives them a warning. He says, anyone who breaks one of the least com- of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if you lead someone astray... Man, Jesus said, it's one thing for you to break them. It's another thing for you to influence someone else or to lead someone else astray. And then he says, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus all of a sudden gives them a higher standard, standard for living. He says that Christians in their time, and remember I talked to you last week about the book, How Christianity Changed the World in the First 300 Years of Christianity. The Roman Empire went from a godless, pluralistic uh, religion 
polytheistic, if you will, to all of a sudden to a Christian nation in 300 years, and that's because the disciples lived their life distinctively different. All of a sudden, the world took notice. Verse 20 says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness... Now listen, this had to shock them. The Pharisees were the teacher of their day. They were teachers of the law. And this had to just rattle them. When he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses those of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Man, you probably could have heard a pin drop when they had been following the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And Jesus probably pointed to one or two of them and says, Hey, unless your righteousness surpasses them, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. See, the Pharisees lived their life just a about outward signs. I mean, all they were consumed with acting right. They had reduced Christianity down to this legalistic way of just doing things. And they just acted religious on the outside. But their heart, inwardly, man, they were far from God. They were far from God. Some people that will frustrate you the most, that religiously do everything they're supposed to do, and they're just mean, and they're just hateful, and they're judgmental, and they gossip, and they slander, and they're harsh. And sometimes in your flesh, you'll say, I can't believe that. They go to church. They're in church like every weekend. And they serve and they do all this other stuff. And this is what Jesus was saying. Jesus said, wait a minute, you've got to understand, it's more than just the outward actions. Boy, it's the condition. It's the condition of the heart. And Jesus wanted people to understand the merit of the law. And, and the law was given to change the hearts of men and women. The Shema is what a good Jew prays three times a day. is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is what they'd pray. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So that's the first thing they committed to, that there's a trinity. God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon, watch this, are to be upon your hearts. And Jesus was saying, you've got to understand, it starts with the heart. The intent of the law was to change you from the inside out. And it's not about this legalism, and it's not about these rules and these regulations and all this other stuff, that it was supposed to change you from the inside out. Then you act it out. And the tension of the law was this, to, to bring people to the point to where their hearts would change, for they changed from the inside out. And Jesus is talking to them about all these different issues as he moves along. And he wants them to understand that they need to be distinctive inside and out. When you look at what the historians said about the early church and the reason that they grew by 40% in the first 300 years, in fact, is the largest, group, largest growth of the early church was in the first 300 years of Christianity. And it's because these people were so radically changed by Jesus Christ, they live life distinctively different than the rest of the world. I mean, they lived life totally, totally different. They were men and women of great integrity and, and, and great transparency. And even non-Christian writers, non-Christian historians of their day 
admitted there was something totally different about these Christians. These Christians lived life totally different. They didn't live life the way that everybody else lived life in their time. And they bound themselves to a solemn oath to where they, they wouldn't do anything wicked or any wicked deeds. And they, they wouldn't commit fraud and they wouldn't lie and they wouldn't commit adultery and they wouldn't, they wouldn't hurt someone and they wouldn't falsify their word. And, and, and they were trustworthy. And they said that when these Christians changed to that level, the whole world, the whole world took notice. Fact is, these historians say this, the greatest thing that ever happened to the early church in that 300-year period was persecution. When they started killing Christians, when they started martyring Christians, the church knew who were the real Christians and who weren't. Not everybody that comes to church is a Christian. You just need to understand that. That's what Jesus was trying to get them to understand. The fact is, the early Christians, the early church would call these people bread Christians. They were, there out of convic they were there out of convenience, not conviction. They were there, it was, just, it was just convenient. It was just something to do. It gave them some respectability. It kind of made them feel good about themselves, but they weren't there out of conviction. They weren't there because they were real deep conviction about what Jesus had done for them. It didn't really change their life. They were only there for convenience. They were only there because it was the thing to do. They treated everybody else the same in the world as the, as the world did. They weren't men and women of integrity. Their word wasn't good. They lived a life in a way that it didn't make Christianity attractive. And the Christian historians say that when persecution happened, the church began to grow. Because the bread Christians, the Christians that were there for convenience, they left. They didn't want any part of it. They didn't want to have to sacrifice their life. They didn't want to have to give. They didn't want to have to go to a deeper level of commitment. They were there for convenience. You know what we would call those people today? Consumer Christians. They come into the church and it's just consumerism. It's all about them. Don't ask me to give. Don't ask me to be more committed. Don't ask me to give back. Don't ask me to do anything because it's all about, it's just about me. And Christian historians say, man, when persecution started in the church, the church was never so strong because on every Sunday in the churches you knew that it was people that were there out of conviction and out of belief that Jesus Christ died and rose again and that life was much better being committed than being nominal or on the fence. There's some things that Jesus tries to get them to understand about this issue of anger. And I've talked about anger a lot here. And, and he goes down and he starts talking to them about the commandment about murder. And we're going to look at that. But what Jesus is really talking about is really talking about anger. You know this. Anger is the most destructive thing in any relationship. I don't care if it's work-related, in the school, in the home, in the neighborhood, sports, whatever. When you look at this issue, you find that anger can be the most destructive thing in any relationship. And I've told you this. As we walk through this, you're going to understand this. But anger is not a primary emotion. Anger is a secondary emotion. In other words, there's something that drives your anger. There's something that drives my anger. Your anger is not your problem. What your problem is, is what's driving your anger. Either it's, if it's unforgiveness or, or, or bitterness or, 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 or whatever. 
that it will drive your anger. Watch this. Here we go. So, so the first thing that Jesus says is, we've got to learn to diffuse our anger if we're going to fulfill the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, verse Matthew 5, 21 and 22, Jesus goes on. He says, you have heard it said to people long ago, do not murder. So he's going back to the law. We're going to watch how he fulfills it, how he takes more of it, how he goes further with it. He says, you remember the law where it says do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment? But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And Jesus all of a sudden takes it deeper and he says, you know what? You guys are proud of yourself. You're patting on yourself on the back because you're religious and you haven't murdered anyone. And you're talking about all the heathens and all the other people that have murdered but I tell you this, you hate your brother. You've slandered your brother. You've hurt their reputation in the community. You've talked about them. And it's much deeper than that. And Jesus has taken them down to the depths. And Jesus raised the standard. And he says, if you want to live a life of integrity, then work on the interior of your heart. Come to the point where you work on the don't. I mean, don't pat yourself on the back just because you haven't murdered, because you've hated. And you get angry with others. Now, it's true. You find in the New Testament that Jesus got angry. Anger is not a sin. It's what you do with your anger that makes it a sin. Jesus has what is called righteous anger, and there was times that Jesus did get angry when they were misusing worship in the church, when, when, he, when he drove out the money changers and some other things. But Scripture says, but, but he did not sin. Listen, there are some times that we should get angry, but here's the problem. Most, most people, we get angry at the wrong things. We don't even get angry at the stuff God gets angry at. We get angry at the wrong thing, and if you're not careful, your family, people around you, will know you as an angry person because you haven't dealt with some things in your life. And Jesus said, hey, don't brag that you haven't murdered because... You're carrying unbelievable anger in your life. But Jesus, when he uses his word anger, he chooses a different word. It's a word that is very seldom new, used in the, in the New Testament. And it's one that says, used, this person is habitually angry. It's not a one-time deal. I mean, this person is habitually angry to when you're around them, you better walk on eggshells. Because if you say the wrong thing, you may set that person off because anger is right under, man, anger is right under the surface. And Jesus is talking about that individual. It is, it is habitually, man, habitually angry. It's that mindset where that person that harbors anger, whether it's out of unforgiveness, resentment, bitterness, all those issues, un resolved issues, things that are unreconciled in your life. And if you harbor that, boy, you long to get even. And you can't get that person off of your mind. And you want to get even for what they did to you or what they said about you. And you even think about how you get revenge. What's real interesting, if you follow a bunch of high-profile court cases or whatever, and when there's been a hor horrendous crime, Carla Faye Tucker in Texas, 
uh, was one of them that I followed, and she axed a guy to death, and, uh, or somebody to death. Uh, she axed a lady to death. And the lady's husband got to watch Carla Faye Tucker get executed, and Carla Faye Tucker met Christ in, in jail and has a testimony and before she was executed. But, uh, but he watched the execution take place. They interviewed him right after that, and they says, you finally got revenge. Did that help you? He goes, no, it made it worse. I thought when I saw that they were going to put her to death, I'd say she finally got what she deserved. It didn't bring closure to me. Fact is, I'm even more angry now than I was. Revenge, listen, let me, man, I've lived this. I can give testimony about being an angry person. I've lived this. This is something that is really real to me. And I can tell you this. Revenge will always leave you wanting more. And never do it. And never do it. And Jesus is trying to help them to understand, deal with the heart. Deal with the issues down deep. Muhammad Ali, in one of his biographies, tells a story about when he was a young boy, his mom and dad gave him his first bicycle. He had it for about two weeks, and it was stolen. Um, a police officer asked him when he was a young boy, he says, Muhammad, what are you going to do if you find the person that stole your bicycle? Muhammad Ali says, I don't know. The police officer cared a lot for Muhammad Ali and liked him, so he took him down to the gym and taught him to box. He said all the way through his professional career, he never forgot that person that stole his bicycle. He said, whenever I entered the ring, I looked across the, 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 the ring at my opponent and said, there's the man that stole my bicycle. <laughs> Listen, anger can do horrendous things in your life. If you're not careful, anger, anger destroy you. If you don't resolve the anger in your life, then you'll take it out on the people that love you and care for you around you, not even the people that have harmed you. You'll make them pay for the sin of another. If you don't deal with this issue of anger, anger is, de is dangerous. Anger can decimate relationships. Anger can keep people from getting close to you. Because they don't know if you're going to be happy or sad. They don't know if you're going to be angry. They don't know how you're going to respond. They will have trouble getting close. It, it will break down intimacy and relationships. Because they're concerned what happens if they say or do or the wrong thing. It can destroy relationships. It can destroy friendships. And Jesus was saying Christ followers need to learn to think and act differently than the world. See, if you and I don't diffuse our anger, then it'll destroy us and the ones around us. And to diffuse anger, you've got to do two things, or you've got to understand two things. One is, you've got to realize it's dangerous. You've got to come to the point in your life and realize, you know, this isn't good. And it's dangerous to me, and it's dangerous to the relationships around us. And then you must understand its cause. Listen, let me just tell you again, anger is not a primary emotion. It's a secondary emotion. If you have trouble with anger tonight, 
Your issue is not anger. Your issue is what is driving. It's what's driving that anger. That's true of anyone. And Jesus was trying to get them to understand this is a matter of the heart. And it's, cri it's, it's critical that we deal with our anger quickly. Watch this. Ephesians 4, 26, 27 um, says this. says, in your anger, do not sin. So, okay, so anger's not a bad thing. There are some things that we should get angry about. We should get angry about the same things that God gets angry about. When people are taken advantage of, when the, when the poor aren't being taken care of, when, when murder and all this other stuff, we should get angry about the same stuff that God, but usually we get angry about stuff that, that we shouldn't even get angry about. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold in your life. In other words, coming to the point when there's conflict, when there's problems, saying, we're going to deal with this. I mean, we're gonna, so many people say, we'll just deal with it later. And you know what they do? They just push it down. Here's what I learned about that. I live my life pushing anger down. And here's what I learned about that. You push it down, your anger will come out at the most inopportune times in your life. Amen. And you'll spill on everybody around you. And you'll run a vacation. You'll run a good day. You'll destroy a celebration because what you've been doing, you've just been taking your anger. And, and let me tell you, you can push your anger down, but your stomach will keep score. Man, it affects you. And Jesus is trying to get them to understand to deal with your anger. The Bible says, man, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. I mean, in other words, what he's saying is deal with your anger. And Karen and I tried that for a number of years, dealing with our anger, never going to bed mad, and we'd just stay up for weeks. Didn't <laughs> 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 <And> any sleep. <laughs> but learning, here, here's the issue. Here's what Jesus is trying to get them to understand is deal with anger in your relationships. And don't let, I mean, don't sweep it under the carpet. Because I can tell you, here's what happens. You want to sweep anger under the carpet in relationships? And you may think it's done. I'll ignore it. I'll stuff it under the carpet. Act like it didn't happen. I'll go on. The next time you get into an argument, the carpet is pulled back and all that junk comes out again. That's why a lot of people deal in, they deal in the past. They live relationships in the past because they've never dealt with their anger. There's never been closure. There's never ever been a time to where they've walked through reconciliation. And you need to learn to release your anger properly. That's what Jesus is saying in verses 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. Listen, you know what he's saying? Replace your anger with service to others. You realize there are some counselors, when they deal with people with intense anger, they make them go volunteer. You realize the greatest thing you could do is realize life is not all about you. The Christian life is not all about you. Realize the most powerful thing that I do in my life is when I help others. You minister to others and you help others. And that's what Jesus is saying. Man, realize this. He says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him a drink of water. In doing this, You'll heap burning coals on his head. Then watch this. 
and the Lord will repay you. Now listen, motives have to be clean here. You can't go out and say, man, I'm going to make them pay now. I'm giving them water. What he's saying is this. You want to mess with your enemy's head? Forgive them. Forgive them. Forgive them. Nowhere in Scripture does it Scripture say, forgive yourself. Nowhere. People waste a lot of emotional energy trying to come to the point, well, I'm just going to forgive myself. Scripture says for us individually, come to the point to where we accept the forgiveness of God. Understand that He's forgiven us. And understand that we're forgiven people. And Jesus is saying, learn to take the high road. And there's all different ways to process, process out emotion and process out forgiveness. And, um, let me just give you one. How's that? In some situations to where it's not healthy to go to the individual that's hurt you. Or maybe the individual, maybe you've tried that and they haven't responded. One of the most healthy things you can do to help process out your feelings of emotions and anger is to write a letter. One that you don't mail. And write a letter and be real of how they've hurt you specifically, what they did to you, what they took from you. And then at the end of the letter, the last paragraph, to where you move to the point and say, but even though you've done all this, I choose to forgive you, release you of that. And then take that letter and burn it, shred it, throw it off a cliff, and mark it in your mind. I've released that person. So that when that person's name or that hurt comes to your mind, you can remember I released them of that hurt. I'm not going to carry it. Man, look at this. Jesus says, don't, just don't diffuse your anger, but watch this. Learn to control your tongue because, listen, one of the most destructive things about anger, it'll drive your mouth. It'll drive your tongue. Because really and truly, that's what we hurt other people with. And, and all of a sudden, he... Watch this, verse 22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment again. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, mouth, he's using his mouth, uh, is answerable to Sanhedrin, but anyone who says you fool will be in danger in the fires of hell. So what does that mean? I mean, does that mean that if you, if you call someone a fool that you're going you're gonna to have judgment? And, and so you need to understand their context. Raka was an expression of, of deep content. Contempt, it was, a, it was the meanest thing that you could say about it. It's the most vile criticism that you could say about anyone. It was literally describing a person, the lowest form of common denominator that you could refer to them there. If, if you said Raka, then it was answerable to the Sanhedrin. In other words, you'd go before the leadership. You'd go, it's like the Supreme Court of their day. But, he says, but if you call someone a fool, you'll be in the dangers of the fire of hell. And Psalm 14 Jesus said, gave the definition of a fool. A fool is someone who says there is no God or, or God is not in, in uh, they're atheist or whatever. And that seems to be what Jesus was referring to. He was not saying that if you call someone, say someone's foolish 
or you're acting like a fool, that you're in danger of the, uh, of the fires of hell. But he says it goes deeper than that. Jesus was warning against the language that condemns another person to hell. And it was very individual what he was saying. It would be in our time, it would be this, that if you told someone to go to hell, to where you were desiring for them that their life would be eternally separated from God, if you will, and Jesus is saying that's a terrible sin. And you, by saying that, are in dangers of the fire of hell. And boy, if you don't deal with your anger, it'll come out in your speech. If you don't deal with your issues, and anger can lead to pain and hurt. The third thing he says is that we must learn to reconcile our, our differences. 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, in other words, if you're in church and you remember that your brother has something against you, you leave your gift there and in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And most people make the connection with our culture and understand that it seems to be that he says that if you're in church and you realize someone has something against you, then, well, you need to address it. He says if you're at odds with another believer, it's in the context of believers, and it's time for the Lord's Supper, it's time for communion, then you may need to settle a, a matter, and you may need to try to reconcile with someone. And it may not have to be elaborate, and it may not have to be time-consuming. It may be with a handshake. It may be with, I forgive you. It may be with a note. It may be with a letter. But for the deeper ones, it may come from a meeting or sitting down with someone. See, reconciliation should be equal with the offense. And there's not really a pat formula to follow, but Ephesians 4.3 says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And Jesus is saying, do everything you can, but listen, reconcile, reconciliation takes two parties. It takes only one party to forgive, but it takes two parties. Two, two groups have to change mutually. And so Jesus wasn't saying every situation will be reconciled. Every relationship will be, sacrificed, uh, will be reconciled. What Jesus was saying is this, as much as it depends on you, and it's just as much as it depends on you, because here's the issue, as much as it depends on you, reconcile with that person and understand that you need to do that if it's a healthy situation. But if you harbor anger and if you harbor resentment, boy, it'll destroy you. Resentment, Resentment is this. Resentment is me setting myself on fire, hoping it hurts the other person. Scripture says it will do more damage to you. There's people running around and don't even know you're mad at them. Don't even understand what they've done. And Jesus is saying this. Watch, verse 15. But if, if you refuse to forgive others, Matthew chapter 6, your father will not forgive you.
And understand this, you can't force reconciliation. And sometimes, sometimes it may be just forgiving that person. But the problem is this, the longer you nurse a grudge, the angrier you will get in life. If you, for, if you refuse to forgive someone, you realize you give that individual the right to violate you every day of your life, to control you, to affect the healthy, the good relationships around you. That's why Jesus said in verse 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is, who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him and on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. And so Jesus was saying, you know what? Try to deal with these matters quickly. Take care of them quickly. Try to take care of them on the way to court. Because when you get into a courtroom, it may even get worse. And Jesus was saying, try to settle these matters out of court. Because once you go into the legal system, you lose total control, and you don't, you don't know what might happen. I mean, it's expensive, and it can take years. And I understand sometimes we have to go to court, and you can't settle out of court uh, to get money for unpaid bills or medical stuff or to be vindicated and all these other issues. But Jesus is saying this, man, try to settle matters out of court. It'll be less painful for you. The fact is, in the Old Testament, the book of Hosea says this, that lawsuits with, are like poisonous weeds in a, in a plowed field. That if you're not careful, that they will destroy you. And Jesus was saying, you'll be much better off if you can settle these matters, and if you can settle these matters out of court, before you go into court and you lose total control, the point of Christ's message was this. Seek reconciliation. Forgive. Whether it's your speech or your words that has gotten you into trouble, whether it's your anger, whether it's your temper, whether you mend fences with family and children or moms or dad, relationships. And Jesus is saying the only way you and I can live at peace is to live in forgiveness. And as I have spoken tonight, maybe some names of some individuals or some situations have come to mind. And Jesus would say this. Would you deal with them? So your anger doesn't destroy and hurt those that are around you. Would you walk through the process so that you can release them? So you can live life as, you, as God intended don't forget this. Anger is a secondary emotion. Anger is a warning light on a dashboard that says something is wrong. It's like the check engine light of your life. This says there's a deeper issue going on. You need to deal with it.